may be seated. As you're being seated, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word this Independence Day weekend and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the 10th chapter. If you're new to Dawson, if you're watching for the first time today, if you're gathered with us for the first time, we're journeying through the Gospel of Mark, 10th chapter, verses 46 through 52 this morning. Mark 10, verses 46 through 52. Happy Fourth of July weekend to you and to those that are watching. It is a unique weekend. There's no denying that. I imagine that uh, uh, many of you did uh, things that you normally do on the 4th, but uh, there's no denying that this was a unique weekend in the life of our country. But we are grateful, however you celebrated the 4th yesterday, we're grateful for the freedoms that we enjoy as, uh, just think about this as Christians living in this country, that we have the freedom to pray openly. We had the freedom to share our faith openly. We had the freedom to worship openly. We don't have governmental coercion that forces us to attend one religious uh, expression. We have the freedom to choose uh, to, to worship God. And frankly, we have the freedom to, to choose not to worship God. And so that freedom is a freedom that we celebrate this weekend. It is a freedom that was purchased on the back of men and women that have sacrificed for our country. And so it is not a freedom that we should take lightly. It is not a freedom that we should neglect to be able to just pause and uh, understand that there are men and women that are deployed even now across our uh, country and, and, and certainly the world and we want to pray for, for their safety as, as we continue to enjoy uh, what has been purchased through sacrifice. Mark chapter 10 is where we are this morning, verses 46 through 52. It is a familiar passage of Jesus healing this blind man named Bartimaeus. Read with me in your copy of God's Word. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said to him, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is a final healing miracle of Mark's gospel here. It is sort of a pivotal account where we're going to head to Jerusalem. We're ultimately going to head to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus in Mark's gospel. This is a familiar passage in the sense that Matthew gives us this story. Luke gives us this story. Do you know the exception? You know what is unique about Mark's depiction of this story? It's the only depiction where we have the name of Bartimaeus. In Matthew's gospel, and Luke's gospel, and Mark's gospel, we have all of these healing accounts, but it's only here that a person that Jesus heals, we know his name, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. 
you need to understand that the Jericho Road, where Bartimaeus was begging, was a familiar road. It was a popular road. You would have Jewish pilgrims that would come into Jerusalem, and this was a roundabout way to go without having to go into Samaritan-occupied country. So Jewish pilgrims that were a little bit hesitant, they didn't like the Samaritans, they would take this popular road. And so you have uh, beggars who are attracted to a crowd, especially a a crowd of religious pilgrims, hoping, these beggars would be hoping, that that maybe there would be a a sense of of a heartstring that would be pulled, and as they're on the side of the road saying, alms, would would you remember me a... A, a person, would you, would you look at me, and you have this person by the name of Bartimaeus who is blind, he's broke, you can imagine he's bewildered, and Jesus comes down the road. Now, while he's blind physically, what we discover is that he is full of spiritual insight. Do you notice the way he calls out to Jesus twice, Son of David? This is the only time in Mark's gospel where anyone calls him the son of David. You go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, there was a long expected anticipation of a Messiah who would come from the lineage of David, who would overthrow enemy occupants, who who would uh, restore the Davidic kingdom. And here you have, not a disciple, but you have this man, penniless, poverty-stricken, Blind on the side of the road, as Jesus walks by, he sees Jesus for who he is, and he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. The religious leaders of the day, they hush him. They silence him. Jesus doesn't have time for for you, you beggar, but he, he, he will not be deterred. He calls out again the same call, Son of David, have mercy upon me. And then in verse 49, we read this powerful passage that Jesus stops. You know what will halt our Savior in his tracks? Do you know what gets the attention of Jesus? It is a sinner calling to him for mercy. This always stops our Savior in his tracks, which leads us to this powerful point that I want you to see from God's word, that salvation is always available to anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Salvation is always available to anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Jesus never passes by a sinner who calls to him for mercy. Notice the way that uh, Jesus gets the crowd to go to this uh, blind, poor Bartimaeus and, and tells him to come over through the crowd to him. And he asks him a question, what do you want me to do for you? Now, it seems just a sort of normal question until you rewind Mark chapter 10 and you get to verse 36 and you realize that this is the same question that Jesus asked of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. He asked them, what do you want me to do for you? And you remember the way that James and John responded to that same question? They responded, hey, we want the left side and we want the right side. Like, where, where are we going to sit in your glory? Give us a hierarchy of who is going to be the most important disciples. That's what we want. And you remember how Jesus responds? You don't even know what you're asking, he says. In verse 38, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? What Jesus is saying is, is you want prestige, you want honor, you want position, you want to be exalted 
to the right hand of God, the only way that one is exalted is that that person would take upon himself the cross, which I will drink of. And here you have the disciples who are spiritually blind. They have followed Jesus this long, and they're still asking questions. They're all about them. And you have this poor beggar who's asked the same question, and his response is, have mercy upon me. Give me sight. It is a humble plea of one who doesn't have money, he doesn't have position, he doesn't have religious authority, he has nothing but desperation that he calls upon Jesus to see him in his plight and to give him what he cannot provide, which is spiritual sight, physical sight. This time about three years ago, Danielle and I, the three boys, we headed to Wrigley Field watching a Cubs game. We'd been several times before, and one of the one of the parts of this pilgrimage for us has always been to try to get autographs of the players. So the first couple of times, we were like, well, we can get to Wrigley really, really early, and we can get them in batting practice and maybe see them come down third base line. So we're like two hours before the game on the third base line, and just to no avail, no chance. So I've done some more research and figured out the place where on the back of Wrigley Field, Clark Avenue right there, where the players are actually leaving after they've taken showers, they've gotten dressed, and there's just one back a lot that they leave from and so we leave at the top of the eighth inning and we go to that place we get to the front of the line and the crowds begin to grow this wasn't a secret i think everybody knew this and would you know it that's exactly where all the cubs players left and you could have heard i mean there were hundreds of pleas for their attention uh, you have uh, someone saying hey anthony the first baseman for the cubs anthony rizzo hey anthony we drove all the way from seattle didn't even stop Kept on going. Hey, Chris, the third baseman, Chris Bryant. Hey, Chris, it's my, my son's birthday today. Didn't even stop. Hey, Javi. Javi Baez, the shortstop for the Cubs. Hey, Javi, uh, this is our first game that we've ever been to. Didn't stop. Getting, you, you realize why they won't stop. I mean, if one player stops, then all the players have to stop. If they sign one autograph, they've got to sign them all. So you can imagine the higher-ups saying, hey, you got to get through the line here. You cannot stop. But every one of those pleas, there were incessant pleas for, for minutes and minutes and minutes after the game while this whole throng of players goes before you. Not one of them turned and looked. Not one of them stopped. Not one of them signed. In contrast to that, you see our Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He has a mission before him. He is headed to Jerusalem. But when poor Bartimaeus calls out to him, have mercy upon me, it stops Jesus in his tracks. And do you know, even today, that what stops our Savior in his tracks is any sinner who would call upon him for salvation. That, that word healed, that's physical healing, it is the same word in the original language in the New Testament that is translated salvation, saved. That, that's why we sung that first song, that great John Newton, Amazing Grace hymn of the faith that we'll be singing if the Lord tarries for the next 500 years and beyond that. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see. It isn't just that this blind Bartimaeus needed physical sight. He needed spiritual sight. 
He received vision, vision to do what? To follow Jesus. He goes from being on the side of the Jericho road begging to leaving his cloak behind and following Jesus on that road. And Jesus is still calling us sinners to become followers of him. And any person, no matter their background, any person who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. I love reading uh, Christianity Today. It's a uh, journal magazine that's been out for you know 60 70 years now but in the last five years or so one of the things that they've done is they're profiling at the end last page literally of the magazine is just titled testimony three months ago i was reading christian today and i just want to share with you the power of our god to save sinners who call upon him for salvation uh, the testimony of zane alquaz that's not his real name his name was changed for this magazine, but hear his testimony. He grew up in the Arabian Gulf region. He was a devout Muslim. These are his words. Growing up, I performed my mandatory prayers in the mosque and even woke up each night to pray for an extra hour. I was proud to be zealous in my faith. I wanted to obtain the blessings and the favor of God as well as the esteem of my family. Becomes a teenager, his family moves to an English-speaking country, he has one piece of advice from his grandmother that said this, watch out for the infidels and don't befriend or associate with them. They are a disease upon our society. He tells the story that he goes to the new school. He founds an Islamic group. He works aggressively to make everyone around him to conform to his religion. Again, this is his testimony. These are his words. He said, I prayed for the death and the destruction of Jews and Christians, the atheists who were unclean, equal in his mind to the pigs and the dogs, and not to be touched. At this point, I had never met a Christian, but I assumed they hated Muslims because they were jealous of Islam's greatness. He's hesitant to be around Christians. He's homesick for all that he left behind in this new country that he's living in, and he's befriended by individuals that happen to attend a Christian church. And so, guess what? They invite him. He goes to church. He does it clandestine. He, he does it in secret because he knows that his family would disapprove of this severely. And these are his words. He entered into the church, and he says, I experienced a strange sensation. As people began praising God, I felt an overwhelming surge of emotion and fell to my knees. I felt helpless and weak, but also as if someone was assuring me that everything would work out. I didn't understand what was happening, but my friends were confident that this sense of comfort was from God. After the service, he says that he received a Bible, and days later he started reading the New Testament, and he fell in love with the character of Jesus. His words, as a Muslim, I knew of Jesus, but I was unfamiliar with the miracles he had performed and the claims that he made about his status as God's only son. Within months, I had read the Bible in its entirety. Then I read it a few more times. The more I read, the more I saw God as my true and loving father. God's word spoke to all the difficult situations in my life. Too many fears and anxieties. I knew that whenever I opened the Bible, I would feel God's comfort. One day, he writes, I went up into my room. I locked the door. I fell on my face. And I prayed to God, telling him that I would put my trust in Christ and Christ alone as my Lord and Savior. I wanted to share this decision with my family, but I was terrified of the repercussions. I remember calling my favorite aunt. She was like a mother to me and asking, if I was to believe in Christ, what would you think? She responded, 
you'd be given three chances to return to Islam or be put to death. The rest of this article profiles sort of his, his own admission to self-righteousness, his own admission to pushing away his family and, and straining the family relations even, even more. But the testimony goes on to talk about how God utilized him and God broke him in many ways and has given him the opportunity to even share his faith with many of his family members. But this kind of testimony, should we get tired of shouting from the rooftops that, that God still stops? He still saves. He saved this man, and he will save you if you call upon him for salvation. He was a sinner, and I was a sinner. At the age of 13, I realized that I was a sinner who needed a Savior. I went back into my room at 106 Elgin Place. I didn't know what I was getting into, but I knew that I was far from God, and Jesus was the only solution. And in that room that night, I prayed, God, save me. And he stopped then, and he will stop now to any person who calls upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Paul would say it this way, writing to the church at Rome, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 13, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Has there been a time in your life where you, like blind Bartimaeus, like you, the subject of this testimony, have you called upon the name of the Lord for salvation? Have you realized that you are alienated from a holy God because of your sin, but he is the solution. He sent his son, and if anyone will call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. There's only one way to salvation, and that way is Jesus. There's only one true life, and that is Jesus. There's only one truth, and that is Jesus. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? For salvation. He still stops. Not only do we see this morning that our salvation is available, or salvation is available to anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, we also see in this passage here that uh, our salvation in Christ transforms our allegiances on earth. I want you to see this, this powerful image embedded here in this passage. Did, did you notice Bartimaeus's response? Do you notice that the crowd goes to him, the same crowd that had hushed him, shushed him, says to him, take heart, get up, Jesus is calling you. And you remember his response. It is a powerful, symbolic response because what does he throw aside? He throws aside his cloak. Now, now you could think that this is just like a passing detail, but it's not. Everything that Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, everything that he writes is just full of meaning. And in that first century world, he's not wearing a cloak because he's like shivering at night. He's not wearing a cloak because it's cold on that Jericho road. His cloak is the equivalent of a beggar's hat. You go to New Orleans, you go through the French Quarter, and at every block there's a musician that's got an open guitar case and they're they're, they're playing 60s and 70s, singer-songwriter music, and they're hoping for a crowd of New Orleans tourists to pass by and to stop and to, to put in some loose change. So his cloak is his livelihood. His cloak is how he collected money. His cloak is where he sat day in and day out, and when Jesus called him, he leaves it behind. He leaves behind his old life 
Why? Because the call of Jesus is greater than his security that has walked with him for all of his life. And do you know that? Do you know that the call of Jesus is still strong enough that it calls us to leave behind our cloaks? To leave behind the old. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth in the second letter that he would write to them, or 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. She is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The claim of discipleship upon our life is so powerful that it is always a call to leave behind the cloaks that we've enveloped ourselves with and to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I know it's July, but I I want you to think about uh, Charlie Brown for a second. You remember Linus and the Charlie Brown Christmas story? So Linus, as you remember, he's the younger brother of Lucy, and Lucy is just so absolutely mean, and she's just always picking on Charlie Brown. He's always picking upon Linus. And so every time you see Linus in the cartoons, every time you see him on the televised uh, Christmas special, he has what? A blue blanket. And he's always carrying that blue blanket. That, that's his security. That's what he finds you know, comfort in. And all of us sort of can relate to Linus because maybe it was a little toy uh, that you had. Maybe it was a blanket that you had. Maybe it was a teddy bear that you had. Maybe it was a little baby doll that you had. But, but there's a little bit of Linus in all of us. And so Linus always has this blue blanket. He comes up before the Christmas pageant and he reads the gospel story of Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, where he recites the Christmas story. And in that moment, he does what? He drops his blanket. not accidental. Charles Schultz is saying something that we need to be reminded of, that, that Christ is sufficient to wipe us from the insecurities and the fears that so easily entangle us. In that moment, Linus drops the blue blanket. But you know what happens? He picks it up. Right after he recites the gospel Christmas story, he picks up the blue blanket, and you know what happens to that blue blanket? The blue blanket follows Linus for the rest of the story until they gather around the Christmas tree, and then Linus bends his knees, and he wraps his blue blanket around the Christmas tree as they sing. Every day we have to choose. What are we going to do with our cloaks, our blue blankets. Uh, We don't see this in Mark, but we know it in our own heart. We know we have a heart like Linus that that we know what it's like to, to drop our blanket, to go pick it up again. And every day we have to bend before not a tree, but what would be shaped from a tree, a cross, and to lay our cloak at the foot of the cross, to lay our blue blanket at the foot of the cross. There's no Christian in this room that doesn't know the pull back to the old cloak of your life. Every day we must choose to deny self, to take up cross, and to do what? What blind Bartimaeus does when he sees to follow Jesus. But we know what it is to be pulled back into those old fears 
and to clothe ourselves in the cloak of prejudice and pride, clothe ourselves back into the, the, the cloak of, of sensuality and immorality, to cloak ourselves in, in the clothing of gossip and gluttony. We know what it is to pick up our cloaks. And so it is Jesus, a Jesus who would stop and call Bartimaeus to follow him is the same Jesus who would stop and call each and every one of us who would put our trust in him, and he is still calling you, Christian, to drop the cloak and to come and follow him. What are you doing with that blue blanket? Are you taking it with you? Are you bending before the cross and offering it to him each and every day? Let us pray. So it is, God, that we hear your word. We desire to follow you. Lord, we ask, even this moment, that you would be our vision we see so much around us in this world so much hurt and so much pain so much dissension and division that at times we fix our eyes on so much of this world where you're calling us just as you were calling Bartimaeus to fix his eyes upon you may we even this morning, fix our eyes upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and may we put, put down the cloaks of this world and follow you faithfully even this morning. May we deny self, take up our cross, and follow after you. Be our vision when everything around us is cloudy, everything around us is confusing. Be our vision. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.